Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where in the league of business, our motto is never give up. We're the team that's always rallying at the bottom of the night. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. Help B2B SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight and nine figures, which is outstanding. Together, we supercharge revenue growth, create premium valuation, and craft a business you're proud of and a life of impact and freedom that you love. Well, big, big shout out this week to our home team, Texas Rangers, World Series champions. It's a big deal here. Long time coming. And given the record this year, so many people said it was absolutely impossible. So congratulations to a team accomplishing the impossible. You know, game one, bottom of the night, Texas was down five to three. Statistically, 10% chance of winning. It's a terrible place to be. Runner on first and Seeger cracks a home run to tie it up 5-5 into extra innings. And nothing happens in the 10th. And then in the 11th, Garcia singles to bring in the winning run. Absolutely amazing. I love high-scoring games. You know, baseball, when it's 0-0, you know, pitchers are throwing you know, shutouts. It's not that interesting to me. But I love high-scoring games. And game two was one of those high-scoring games. But the, the Rangers lost nine to one. I don't like those high scoring games, you know, when, when the team loses. So it's like, OK, was the first win a fluke? I mean, that, that's a, a pretty, uh, pretty significant spank in there. Uh, but it was a very competitive and exciting series. And it wasn't a fluke. The Rangers and Diamondbacks were both wildcard teams. Scrappy fought their way to the World Series and never gave up. That's fantastic. And of course, the Rangers won. So how about your team? You know, what do they do with a loss of nine to one? I mean, when they're down the bottom of the night, two outs, full count, and everything is on the line. You know, the air is crackling with anticipation. Every fan in the stadium is on their feet. And the same question on everybody's mind is like, can they do it? You know, are they going to do something or are they just going to fold? Well, this isn't just baseball. I mean, it's the epitome of what makes or breaks a SaaS venture. You know, what's the right strategic play here? I think first up, we have to really be great talent scouts as leaders. It's not enough to just fill positions with warm bodies. And in a market like this, that can be pretty tempting. You know, you've got to go draft the all-stars who fit the team jersey like it was made for them. Now, look beyond the resume. What is their EQ? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, their emotional quotient. You know, can they pivot faster than a shortstop? How's their hustle? Remember, diversity in skills and thought isn't just nice. I mean, it is your utility player that can adapt to any position the game throws at them. They can do multiple things. You know, your talent should be like a perfectly balanced batting order, ready to advance runners and bring home the wins. Remember the movie Moneyball? I was like finding the best statistical player in every position. They weren't looking for just the known superstars. And it was actually moving some people into places that are like, I've never played here before. But they excelled in those positions because the, the numbers said that they would. So look beyond just the superstars when you're really building that team out. Next, there's you, the coach. When you're not just calling plays, you are building a legacy. And sure, strategy is key, but so is the culture you cultivate in the clubhouse. 
be the leader who brings out the rookie's potential and fine tunes the veteran's prowess. Communication is your coaching superpower, so wield it to align your team towards a common goal. And when the pressure mounts, remind them that this is what they train for. And we fall back on our training. Show them the vision of that championship parade and lead the rally cry that echoes beyond the locker room. And number three is commitment. Yeah, it's like that clutch hit. It's like a designated hitter that comes in and you know they're going to make an impact in the game. Because it's easy to slide into home when you're up by 10. You know, hey, it's no big deal. But what about when you're down by three, it's raining and the crowd's left. You know, the parking lot's empty now, the stadium's empty, everybody's kind of given up. That is when true commitment shines. You know, it's staying late for practice. It's analyzing the game tape. You want a team that is as hungry for the win in practice as they are under the big stadium lights. Their heart has to be in every pitch and every swing and every play. And instill a passion that burns brighter than the floodlights, turning every setback into fuel. Because when the game is on the line, it's that heart that scores the winning run. Yeah, in the high stakes game of business, it's not just about winning the inning or you know scoring the next run. It's about how you play the entire season, including all the highs and the lows. Because doing that well will not only set your company up for the win, but will ensure that your team is league leading for the whole season to come. If you could use some solid players and more home runs on your Moneyball SaaS journey, check out today's sponsor, Champion Leadership Group. It is the ultimate resource for SaaS founders and C-suite executives to continue to develop themselves, scale their companies, and never walk alone on the journey. Supercharged revenue by leveraging our time-tested SaaS growth principles, toolkits, playbooks, and frameworks designed to help you scale AR from seven to eight to nine figures. Collaborate with an elite network of SaaS visionaries as we up-level ourselves, our teams, and have a lot of fun along the way. Confidently take that right next step that turns into a quantum leap of profitable growth, premium valuation, and freedom. Learn more at championleadership.com. Our expert last week was Mike Porter, president at Print Mail Consultants. Mike and I talked about content marketing, how to engage the SMB market, and delivering content in some surprisingly effective ways. Our founder last Tuesday was SaaS legend Rand Fishkin, the Wizard of Moz and founder and CEO of SparkToro. We talked about his journey to $100 million, wins, losses, and building smarter this time around. Rand is a super guy who shares the good, the bad, the ugly, and I just love what he's building at SparkToro. And be sure to grab a copy of his book, Lost and Founder. If you missed either of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest today is not your average tech CEO. Greg Rich is founder and CEO of Vivantio, the customer fanatics. They provide an outstanding service management SaaS. Now, Greg's journey into the world of customer service began at 13 years old, rooted in his family's business and melded service with technology, leading a world-class help desk. He started Vivantio in the early 2000s to bring service to the cloud. Vivantio was founded on the idea that great service starts at the core of any organization. Welcome someone who hopes their clients deliver the best possible service experience to their customers. Greg Rich. Hey, Greg, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Thanks, Jeff. Nice to be here. Well, tell me the story about Vivantio. And how did you start that company? 2003, 20 years in tech is incredible. And what, what led you to, to start that and, and you know, customer success being 
the big focus? Um, so, yeah, I guess my customer services journey goes right back to the age of 13. Um, my parents moved back from the Middle East uh, when I was quite young and opened up a, a residential home in the southwest of England. From Like I said, from a young age, I was working there, you know, helping out uh, in, in the home uh, with, with the elderly and just really loved it. Just really enjoyed uh, helping other people. Um, and then my, my first uh, proper job uh, really was uh, working in uh, the Southwest's um, housing association. So this is a social landlord. It was one of the largest in the UK, uh, working in on their, you know, within their IT team, uh, providing service and support to the staff of the organization. And we had about uh, maybe 12, 13,000 homes under management. So, you know, wow. uh, essentially providing services to the team that were providing services to tenants, you know, people that were living in those homes. And, you know, it was it was a real eye-opener for me uh, going through that process because first, it was the first time I touched technology. Didn't, you know, this was back in uh, 1990, so a long, long, long time ago, um, before even Windows for Workgroups was, was a thing. Um, and as technology came in, I just had a, a love for it, um, seemed to sort of adapt to it quite quickly and um, learned it quite quickly. But then started to realize the impact the technology had on the business and what impact that had on the end customer who were the tenants, you know, the people that were living in those homes. Um, you know, they were phoning, uh, logging things like, uh, you know, repair calls because, you know, there were issues in the home. They had, you know, we had um, tenants that obviously were, um, you know, underprivileged. So it was being able to find them food and, and lodging and affordable housing. So it was important. You know, what we were doing was important work. And, you know, that just grew my fondness for work, you know, combining technology and, and actually customer service and, and helping other people. And then in 2003, the, uh, one of the other people that worked at Nightstone, uh, Russell Wiltshire, he wasn't there at that point, but, uh, you know, we'd, we'd uh, worked together at Nightstone for about seven or eight years, uh, decided that, yeah, we take the, the leap into, uh, into the customer services world. Uh, this was a time when uh, online software didn't exist. There was no salesforce.com. Right. Online banking had only just sort of uh, come to fruition, but, uh, you know, and the technology was relatively new. We were using uh, ASP.NET and classic ASP to, to build web apps. Uh, but we just saw an opportunity to develop software that could be used uh, predominantly in the small to medium business of small to medium enterprise because nothing existed um, back then for small companies. They were using access databases and, you know, Excel spreadsheets and things like that. So we just saw an opportunity to build uh, a web-based application that could be serviced to, to small small organizations. And that was it. That was the start of it. Um, good luck or good judgment. I'll let you decide. But, uh, you know, <laughs> as you say, 20 years later, we're still here and it's still going strong. So it started then like as uh, an installed application. Is it, do I understand that right? No, it was always it was always SaaS based. So okay. right from the very outset, we saw the uh, advantages and the economies of scale that you would get from building you know multi tenant web applications. Uh, you know, it was just the two of us, and you know we had grand ideas. How could we handle and manage multiple customers uh, with a single platform where we didn't have to go through multiple updates? You know, as releases were were sent out. Uh, so we just saw efficiencies that came from web-based applications with a, a single code base, but, you know, separating the sort of database architectures per customer um, and what that meant from a scalability perspective. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So you were SaaS before SaaS was, right? Before exactly. SaaS In fact, it wasn't called sure. SaaS. It was called, <laughs> yeah, it was called, we called it on demand. You know, that's how, that's how long ago it was. It had a different name. <laughs> that's, I started in 2005 and back then it was ASP. ASP, yeah. yeah. Application service provider. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Application service provider. A yeah, long time ago. Yeah. Indeed, I guess it's grown indeed. quite a bit since then. I mean, so have you transitioned? I mean, now you're multi-tenant. You're, you're really a true SaaS now. 
True SaaS provider, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and we still reap the same benefits of scalability that uh, that we did even back then. I mean, the technology has changed considerably over that time, sure. um, as has the infrastructure, you know, the way in which we can uh, service, um, you know, multiple customers with, you know, containers within Azure, um, you know, is, is just, you know, completely different to the architecture that we used, uh, you know, two decades ago or even two years ago, in fact. Um, but that's great. That just allows us to, to scale uh, more quickly, more evenly, or being able to uh, increase as demand increases, we can, you know, increase the uh, scalability of those servers to ensure that customers aren't affected, you know, um, through, uh, you know, high processing units and things like that. So it's, uh, yeah, it's the technology has really helped support, um, you know, what, what we do. Yeah, I mean, 20 years is, is an eternity in tech. And I think that's really, really cool. Uh, that, you know, that you've been around that long and have, have made the, the different pivots along the way and, uh, and stayed ahead. I mean, cause you know, technology goes so fast and yeah. constantly evolving. How do you make sure that Vivantio stays ahead of the curve and continues to innovate? Well, I suppose, I mean, we've got a great team around us, but we, we've always been a creative innovative company, you know, even from, you know, as I said, even from the very early days coming up with, a, you know, an on-demand solution at the time was ahead of its ahead of its time. Uh, and so I suppose we, we constantly challenge ourselves to come up with new ideas or to think differently about how we might be able to, um, you know, improve customer service and customer experience. And also, you know, the impact it has on the, the agent, the, the user that's using the product. Um, you know, we're, I'm one of these people that likes using software that's nice to use. Um, yes. You know, it has to be effective, it has to be efficient, um, and I have to be able to understand it. But obviously, if I'm, you know, if I'm working within an environment for several hours a day, that that has to be, you know, a good experience for me. And that obviously relates then to the experience that you give to your customer potentially, um, especially if you have the tools around you that um, enable you to do your job properly. So. I guess, yeah, it's it's just constantly challenging ourselves. And of course, things come out within technology. You know, AI is an obvious big one at the moment. Uh, you know, and we, we've been talking about AI for 10 years, in all honesty. Um, it, it's not really been true AI until, you know, the last couple of years with, with the uh, evolution of, you know, ChatGPT and things like that. But we we look at those and say, well, how can we utilize that within our industry? Right. You know, how can it help, um, uh, you know, achieve efficiencies or um, provide agents or end customers with a better experience? And what impact does that have on the business? So, so you know, it's, it's, it's a combination of multiple things. I mean, we're just, I mean, we're tech geeks at the end of the day. So, of course, anything that we see that looks cool and great and we, we, we think that can, you know, add value to our products and services and to our customers, then we, we, we jump all over it. Yeah. Well, for, for those listening, you know, can you define, you know, what is it that you do? What is a service management SaaS and uh, who needs it and why would we benefit from having one? Yeah, so Provancio is a, an enterprise service management platform uh, really aimed at the B2B uh, service and support mid-market. And um, the, the type of customers that use Vivantio are the type of customers that are le- uh, needing to scale their service operations. So they may be using, um, you know, like an entry-level case management system to, to field requests from customers uh, or internally from staff, you know, support requests or requests for help with service. And, uh, you know, those are growing teams and, you know, in a, in an age of digital transformation that, you know, the, the number of requests that are coming into service teams now has quadrupled in the last two or three years. And so these, these are teams that are looking to find more efficiency in the way in which they deliver service to customers whilst improving the customer experience. That's the big key here. 
Um, you know, it's kind of doing more with less. You know, how can they come become more efficient? How can they optimize service delivery? Um, how can they get allow customers to help themselves more? Um, you know, if they want to, um, and if the customer does reach them, how can they be you know more efficient in providing a solution to that customer's uh, you know query or, or request? So that that's what Vivantio does. We we provide you know a platform and a solution that enables scaling teams to 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 become more efficient as a great solution as well. Thank you. And, you know, being in the, the space that you are, I mean, customer service, service management, that has to be a super priority inside your company as well. So how do you do that? And how do you provide that great service from top to bottom and, and make that a priority for everybody? Yeah, I suppose for Fantio, I, I, we, you know, we are we consider ourselves a customer service first organization. Um, I think predominantly that comes from me. You know, my background has always been in customer service. So, you know, even as we went uh, and, and started Vivantio, this was, we weren't building a technology company. We were building a company that could provide others, uh, a solution for others to deliver great service. So we were always thinking about service, um, you know, customer service first. And as as we've grown, uh, you know, we've surrounded ourselves with people that have the same core values to, to to, to that, you know, to speak to that uh, core value. Um, and that's really important to us. So, you know, we're a great company when it comes to um, our service ethics. Uh, and, you know, many other companies do the same thing. So when I think about this, it's it's not, it, it can't just be about throw the technology at it. You know, there has to be a certain element of, mm, yeah. uh, you know, understanding what service and support means to an organization, you know, and the value that it brings uh, both to customers and and to the bottom line. So there's a you know there's a couple of things that I think about when I approach this. One is making sure that you have the right tools and the right processes in place to enable your agents to be successful in their role. You know uh, there's a steep learning curve in terms of learning products and services that you're supporting for your end customers. You know and how can you uh, streamline that to to allow those agents to be productive from you know very early on. So they're not under pressure, you know, dealing with complaints or dealing with support queries is very active and it can be, you know, a very difficult environment to work in. So enabling your agents to be in a position where, um, you know, they have the tools and the information they need to provide provide good services is really important. But ultimately, you still want to be uh, a customer services first, you know, person, you, you know, you want to actually help people. And I think that that's for us, certainly as an organization, that's what we try to do um, as we've, as we've grown is bring people into the organization that think about customers in the same way that, uh, that I do. I like that. Yeah. It's, it seems to be, I mean, from my mind, yeah, a lot of, a lot of pressure because you're, you're providing the service. You have to deliver that yourself. So I love that being a customer service first organization. So if, if, you know, myself and listeners want to, you know, do better and, and become a customer first organization, what type of advice would you give us in looking to, you know, how can we improve our service? How can we improve our service management processes and enhance the customer experience? So one of the things we try to uh, educate people on who are looking at Vivantio are some of the best practice frameworks that exist already. So IT have been doing a great job of this for the last two decades. There are, you know, IT service management in particular, and even enterprise service management have been around for, for many, many years. And, you know, there are frameworks like uh, uh, ITIL4 uh, that talk about the way in which uh, service delivery can be delivered to customers and how to understand and model what continued service improvement looks like uh, you know so you know service success and service experience just doesn't stop you know it's an evolution because the customers change the products and services you offer change the technology and the platforms change um, so you're always looking at ways in which you can you know effectively improve 
um, the service that you deliver to your customers. So we don't practition it as such in that we don't force ITIL on people, but there are certain elements of like ITIL that I think that um, any service organization should look at. Sure. Um, and you know, that we got some great articles on our website about maybe some of the first things you might want to consider as you start thinking about service optimization um, as, as it relates to ITIL and that framework and, and picking out some of the real gems. You know, so service level agreements might be one. If you haven't built out a robust service level um, management system, then it's impossible to prioritize, you know, a, a large number of requests. Who do you deal with first? Who, who, who you know, who's having the worst uh, impact on their business based on problems they're, you know, having at that point in time? So, you know, if you've got hundreds of tickets coming into your service desk every day, you know, how do you ensure that you're working on the right thing? And service level management and service level agreements are a way of actually being able to mm. define how you treat those. And and then it prioritizes things for you. And it, it tells you, start at the top and you work your way down the list and, you know, you're, you're working in the right order. So th this is where the efficiency comes from. Uh, you know, there's less guesswork and, you know, uh, more processes that can be put in place to allow people to be more productive. Yeah. Well, as a customer-first organization, I'm sure, like all of us, you get requests for enhancements, and you want to want to do those. How do you prioritize your roadmap and, and kind of strategically where you want to go as a company with those requests that are coming in from your customers? Yeah, it's a really great question, and it's something we're still, uh, if I'm completely honest, it's something we're still working to to. Um, to elevate, uh, you know, we, we use, uh, yeah, we use a product to, to manage all of our, uh, and to track all of our requests from customers, you know, backlog items, enhancement requests, bug fixes, things like that, as well as, uh, you know, things that our prospects are asking for, you know, because yes. like I said, it's an ever changing, uh, industry. So, you know, we're seeing a, a ton of integration with Microsoft Teams at the moment. We're seeing people want to look at AI as, as it relates to digital self service. So, you know, these are things that are happening in real time. And, you know, are we ahead of the curve, uh, in, in terms of delivering those? So we map all of that into a huge big product board, uh, which we uh, which we have internally. Uh, it's also forward focus facing. Excuse me. So that allows our customers, uh, in particular, to go in and see what we've got on our development plan and to vote um, for items, you know, up or down as to as to where they see the priorities. And then, of course, it has to tie in with the innovation that we have. So, you know, we're, we're, we're thinking about ways in which we can enhance the product, uh, whether that's user experience or, you know, the user interface. Um, we have ideas, but, you know, we want to make sure that we bring the relevant uh, customers into that conversation, people who've asked about that feature before, um, who would like a, a seat at the table to, to, to discuss how we might develop a particular enhancement that would, value, that, you know, be a benefit to all our customers. As I said, it's a single tenant platform. So, of course, you know, we can't have, uh, you know, we, we can't be in a position where we're developing solutions for each and every customer because then, right. you know, the scalability isn't there. We, we, and, and obviously, the maintenance of those things um, would be problematic. So, obviously, uh, approaching this with a, a view of like, how do we enhance it for all our customers is, is kind of how we approach it. But it's difficult, you know, several hundred customers plus, you know, things that we want to do plus the things that our uh, prospects and potential customers are asking for. It's, uh, it's a lot to juggle. Yes, yes. Well, as a CEO, what role do you play in fostering a culture of innovation within the company itself? So I think from my perspective, it's giving people the, the freedom to, to breathe and to move. Um, I always consider myself as the one that needs to get the obstacles out of the way of others so that they can actually do what they do best. Um, and, and that's kind of, you know, what I try and do uh, at, a, at an organizational level. We follow a, um, a process called EOS, um, Entrepreneurial Operating System, uh, which has been around for, for a long time. 
And, sure. you know, what that helps us do is focus on, you know, rocks for the quarter. And that's good for me because it helps me understand what the priority of each of the team members is that, you know, is driving us towards the goals that we've set for the organization. And then it's my job to make sure that I'm allowing those people to get those things done. So, you know, what are the things or the obstacles that are standing in their way? And of course, EOS is a great way of like tracking and solving issues that come up on a weekly basis that are, that are stopping those things happening. So, so that, that's kind of, I see my role uh, predominantly in, in, uh, you know, allowing others the, the, the freedom to actually move forward, you know, just you know, to, to keep momentum. Um, cause obviously that helps drive the business forward. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I love that. And uh, having everything, those priorities really mapped out and clear, everybody working, knowing what they're working on is super important. And, and alignment as well. It's not even yes. what they're working on. Like how does it, how does it align with the, the values of the business or the, you know, the priorities of the business, I should say, um, and making sure that we're all actually pointing and heading in the right direction. So again, it's, it's, you know, EOS is not, uh, a phenomenal thing, but it, it is a process that really allows you to stay focused on the things that matter, um, which is why I think it's, uh, it's been really successful for us. Yes. Yes. Well, 20 years, I mean, the, the journey is never always up and to the right. I say that all the time. Um, what have been the challenges in building Vivantio? So I think t- two, two big challenges, I suppose. Um, one, I guess, was, uh, you know, the move to the US and looking at scaling the business. Um, you know, I moved out here from, from the UK back in 2011. And, you know, we all talk the same language in the UK and the US, but the approach to business is very different. You know, the, uh, the sales process is very different. Uh, customers can be very different. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's been quite, uh, a difficult thing to navigate as we sort of try to um, scale in the US in the first early days, and obviously bringing in um, expertise, you know, from from within personnel within the US was instrumental in in getting us sure. talking the right way and and working in the right way that that, that worked for for both US and UK customers. So that that was certainly challenging. The second, I suppose, was uh, when Russ had to leave the business um, back in 2017 due to ill health. Uh, you know, we'd been together for 20 something years um, at that point, you know, both working in social housing and then obviously starting a business together. Uh, we always wow. we always sort of thought that, yeah, we always sort of thought that the we were, we were one of those where, you know, the sum of our parts was greater than the, the two of us, you know, it, it, it kind of, we, we always approach things very differently and, uh, but both very respectful for, for each other's opinions. And I think that ended up allowing us to, um, you know, create really good solutions and come up with really good ideas that, that, that helped grow the business. So when he left, it was kind of like losing an arm, uh, yeah. if I'm completely honest. And it was a difficult thing for me to, to transition through. I did a couple of things there. First, I, I realized that I needed to surround myself with other people that would challenge me and, uh, you know, would work with me and, and help me. So I joined a, a Vistage group, uh, to get access to a Vistage chair, um, and also to other CEO peers. So we meet once a month, you know, and there's a lot of great stuff that goes on as being part of that, um, that, that group. Um, in terms of helping solve problems and talk about you know issues I'm having within the business and, and and having others that may have experienced that that can give me advice as well as being able to you know pitch strategic ideas and either they're agreeing or shooting me down and telling me why so that that has always been good um, as well as putting together a small sort of trusted advisory board here in the uh, the Boston ecosystem as well of, of people I've been working with over the last 10 years but what that really did you know as much as that was a difficult thing to get through uh, it, it did really help me change my focus and my mindset from you know what was really a lifestyle business up until that point to a growth mind a growth mindset and thinking about how we can take Vivantio um, and you know try and get our products and services to as, as many organizations as possible um, in order for them to help um, you know their customers so that you know 
silver lining, I guess, in terms of that was 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 obviously you know um, being able to pivot uh, into that sort of mindset and really think about the future of the company um, and 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 where I want to take it um, over the next sort of five to ten years. It makes a lot of sense. So in you know shifting from lifestyle business to a growth mindset, uh, how did that affect your leadership style or maybe the goals of the company? And and how did you move forward? I mean, did was it a conscious decision? Or was it something that did you kind of look back and went, oh, yeah, we've shifted? It, it was quite a conscious decision. Um, I, I think that I was challenged. You know, the great thing about Vistage in particular and, and, and my chair at Vistage, Kerr, you know, was being challenged in terms of the opportunity. And, you know, no discredit to, it, to you know, any UK listeners that might be out there at the moment. But what, what I found when, you know, since living in the US and being surrounded by US companies is the attitude towards uh, growth and opportunity uh, is amazing here. It's just you know, people are really fueled. Yeah. Um, they've got great energy. Um, they really think about, um, you know, maximizing opportunities and really, you know, put that time and effort in and, you know, you'll get rewarded for it. And, uh, you know, I didn't really find that. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe that that's prevalent in other parts of the UK, but certainly in the Southwest where I was from, you know, small Somerset town didn't, didn't exist. Um, and so <laughs> like being, being surrounded by that was, uh, was a, a really powerful thing for me, um, to start thinking in a different way. Um, I'm being challenged about the opportunity. Uh, you know, when I say, well, I'll, I want to get to 10, a $10 million company They're They're like, well, why not a hundred million? What, you know, we're not a billion, you know? And that was the first time I'd been surrounded by people that were thinking like that. And that was uh, really helped me open my eyes and open my mind to the possibility. I think it's, it, it was a conscious decision, you know, to say that the market, you know, going to doing the research, looking at the TAM and the SAM and the SOM and understanding like, you know, what the opportunity is that exists, who our competitors are, you know, whether we have a niche in the market and then taking a step back and saying, no, there is an opportunity here. There, we can be a hundred million dollar company. We can be a unicorn. Um, you know, so, so that has definitely been something that I've actually made a, a decision to do. And you're right. That then changed the, the course of the company. Uh, you know, it changed the way in which I thought about growth. So, you know, we went and raised a couple of million in uh, debt equity, uh, at the start of last year to help, you know, fuel this. You know, we're looking now for an equity round towards the end of this year, early next year to help with our growth plans. I wouldn't have thought about those things five years ago. They weren't even on the table. So it certainly changed my approach to how we scale a business uh, in, in the shortest period of time as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, I love having that outside influence and really pushing you. And when you say 10 million and somebody says, why not a hundred? I mean, that just, that's just awesome that, that you have people yeah. pushing you forward and, and stretching your mind. That's it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think it was uh, Napoleon Hill. He said, you know, my mind once stretched can never return to its original shape. And, and I think no, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, it absolutely is. It absolutely <laughs> is. Yeah. If I go back and look at myself, you know, five years ago, it's like, I, I couldn't go, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't go back to that. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've seen too much and I've heard too much now to, to, to go back. <laughs> that's good. So well, if you could go back and tell your younger self yeah, something, yeah. give yourself, you know, one piece of advice, uh, what would that be? Um, if I was being, um, humorous, I'd say, look after your knees. Um, <laughs> but, but I think, um, I think I should have, you know, I left it a long time after Russ left to kind of like regroup and regather. Um, and I, th I should have realized and learned that, yeah, having those people around you, um, I've got a great COO as well, Andy, 
um, you know, it's a huge rock for me. Um, great friend, great mentor, and, uh, you know, uh, it helps keep me grounded. But I think, make, you know, making sure you surround yourself with really um, bright, smart people that are willing to challenge you, um, that are empathetic and, and, and willing to work with you. I should have done that earlier on. Yeah. And and as I was losing people along the way, maybe like Russ, you know, I should have realized that that, that void needs to be filled quickly um, for me to mm. continue drive yeah. forward so so i think that that would probably be one of the things is i would tell myself uh you know early on is just yeah just just surround yourself with smart people um and, yeah. and uh yeah they'll look after you yeah that's definitely true so any big surprises uh, along the journey things that you thought you know that were going to go one way and went another and it could be better or worse but anything that that has surprised you in building vivantio the challenges, I suppose, as it relates to growth have been the, you know, we've gone through a pretty difficult period over the last few years and so much has changed. Um, I, I I still struggle um, personally, you know, I've got a great team around, but, the, you know, the, thinking about demand generation and the, and the sort of go-to-market strategies, you know, the, the people we sell to now are different than the people we sold to 10 years ago and the buying yeah. patterns and behaviors of these people have changed considerably. So, uh, the the adapting to uh, you know the changes in the the marketing um, the PR the the, the uh, you know getting the name out there has has been certainly a challenge um, I ha- I have to say and it's it's not a black art but it's sometimes I said there are some days it feels like it is <laughs> absolutely um, I can so relate that, to that. that has been one yeah yeah and and again I think I mentioned it before but moving to the US seemed like an easy thing to do. You know, like I said, you know, similar problems, similar challenges in terms of the technology. Uh, You know, we all talk the same language. There's a lot of, you know, commerce that happens between our two countries, but it was harder than I thought. You know, that that move was more difficult than I expected it to be. And uh, yeah, had to had to pivot and adapt um, in order to to be successful uh, in in the US. So that that was that was a surprise, you know, um, when we came out here and, and it didn't just land and expand on day one. Yeah. Sure, sure. Well, we have a, a fair number of listeners that are outside of the U.S., and, and some of them are moving into the U.S. market. Um, you know, talk a little bit more about that and you know what that journey was like and how you had to adapt. Yeah, so I mean, you know, it's both both professionally and uh, personally, it's a challenge. Uh, like I said, it's you know, for anybody that's either gone through it or people that are thinking of going through it or going through it now. Um, you know, whether you're going, you know, moving to the UK or moving to the US, um, it, it, it's very different. Uh, the lifestyle is different. The, uh, the, the terminology, the technology is different. Uh, you know, there are, it, it, it's, uh, even from a personal perspective, it's, it wasn't a challenge, but it was a learning curve. Um, even from saying, well, I need to hire a car. It's like, you know, <laughs> what do you mean hire a car? You're trying to lift it off the ground? It's like, no, I need, I need to rent a car. Oh, right. rent a car. You know, and so it's just, there were just like crazy things like that that would happen that, uh, that, uh, you know, you're sitting there Googling saying, well, you know, what's the, what's the American equivalent for this? And, and it was, you know, it was, it was some, that, that was, that was interesting to get through. Um, Professionally, I think I was really lucky from day one. I had a lot of support from the UK trading industry as we moved out here, and they made some really great connections um, from day one, uh, from from sort of landing here. Uh, who are still, uh, you know, they're actually one of them is part of my advisory board now. Still, you know, the very se- the second person I met, uh, you know, professionally from moving to the US. Wow. So there are a lot of great organizations that are here now that help with that transition to to um, to another country. And I think, yeah, using someone like the UK trading industry or you know Chamber of E-commerce and things like that, they can put you in contact with organizations that have you know that have done this before and and understand you know what it's like to move 
uh, from one country to another and how to build out a business, how to, you know, and they can start making connections as well, uh, whether that be from financials to marketing and sales, from finding, uh, you know, employees, uh, you know, recruitment agencies, whatever that might be. Uh, that was instrumental uh, for, for me on day one is just surrounding myself with people that understood the challenge I was going through, uh, understood, you know, what it was like from moving from the UK to the US and had other customers and clients that had gone through that process. And I could just, you know, reap the benefits of their expertise. So, so yeah. I would say anybody that's going through that process, uh, absolutely, you know, try and find an organization that has experience in doing this, um, and, and, and lean on their experience because it's, you know, it's pretty daunting. It's, uh, like I said, it's, it, it's, it's very different, uh, you know, culturally. And um, I mean, great. Don't get me wrong. I've been here twelve sure. years now. I absolutely love it here. So it's not like <laughs> not like it's a challenge, but but it was a challenge moving. You know, th- th- it was difficult uh, both for me and the family. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is different, and I think that's that's true. Uh, you know, no matter what country it's from, but you would think that the UK and the US would be very very similar, and and there are some similarities for sure. But uh, it yeah. is very different in business and in terminology and the way that people work and. Uh, how sales, you know, just the, the, the way that meetings go and demos and, and yeah. that kind of thing. It's, it's all different. It is absolutely what I found. Uh, well, you know, what's been positive here is, uh, merging those two things together. So, you know, yeah. we found that, you know, th- whether it be through sales and marketing, sales in particular, and, you know, the way in which we handle demos or, or, or work with customers, you know, pre, uh, you know, in a pre-sales environment, there's great compliments that like the UK and the US teams coming together can offer when developing solutions because similarly they, they come back at it with different perspectives um, and that actually ends up being a really positive thing um, so we have sales engineers working with salespeople that are both from different countries um, and swapping in and out professional services is exactly the same we have some professional services people working on us customers and vice versa um, and i think because uh, it brings a different perspective it actually ends up being really advantageous for the customer uh, which is great yeah. and the teams get to collaborate and they get to work together and there's a lot of jokes about you know some of the sayings that we have and the, the the colloquialisms that we come out with now and again, um, which which can be funny, and it's it, it's it's a, it, it actually creates a really interesting and collaborative working environment. Um, yeah, it's it's been I've I've really enjoyed watching it. Um, you know, the two teams grow. We're about similar size in terms of the UK and the US now in terms of number of personnel, and uh, nice. it's uh, it's a very collaborative and really fun environment. Yeah, there's there's a lot of fun that goes on. Um, hard work, but a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Did you see the same kind of differences in customer service and how that worked? Service delivery models being different in different geographies? Less so, I have to say, actually. No, I, th- I think, um, you know, the way in which you approach customer services for, our, or for the organizations that, um, that utilize Vivantio is very similar across the board. You know, they're facing very similar challenges at the moment across, uh, across all industries as well. I mean, not even countries, but across industries too, you know, with mm, the tech yeah. um, shortage that we we're seeing, um, across, uh, both continents at the moment in terms of, um, technical skills. You know, nobody has really gone into tech, the tech industry in the last five to 10 years. Lots of engineers. Is, but nobody really in well, traditional IT support or IT service not um, is is a challenge for most organisations. So as the demand has increased, you know I can't remember what Gartner said. Now it's like 1.4 million jobs are currently unfilled at the moment in within yeah. tech. So well, who's providing that service? So you know organisations are really looking now at technology in order to fill the skills gap because the skill isn't there. You know, and that, that's not even in terms of providing service and support, but 
you know, in terms of the maintenance of these systems, you know, some of the enterprise systems, you know, whether that be Salesforce or uh, ServiceNow, you know, they, they sometimes require, you know, engineers just to keep those systems maintained uh, because they're just right. beasts, they're goliaths, um, and for, for obvious reasons. But organizations don't have access to the skilled people that they need to maintain those systems now. So, of course, then they fall behind. You know, they can't adapt as the business changes. So, you know, how do they get, um, how do they have the ability to take control of those systems and be able to make those changes themselves without relying on technical resource? So, no, I'm, I'm, we're, we're hearing um, a lot of pain from within the service and support industry in terms of like, yeah. how are they going to cope with the next few years. Um, and, you know, speaking to Gartner and IDG and, and Forrester on, the, on these subject matters too, you know, they're, they're having the same conversations with their customers, you know, in the service and support industry and, and hearing exactly the same problems. Yeah, they, there is definitely going to be a, a, a challenge over the next few years in, in you know, organizations that are scaling um, and, you know, having the access to this, the, the talent that they need to, to deliver that service. So I'm hoping that, that you know, solutions like Vivantio can help bridge that gap and actually help them, you know, be more efficient, be more effective with fewer people and still be able to provide the service in need. That uh, makes sense. Well, you did mention that, yeah, there there's definitely a service gap and then technology is filling some of that. What do you think about self-service and automation and, and maybe self-service and AI? And how do those play into delivering great service? Or do they? So this is... Uh, yeah, they do. Yeah. So this is one of the areas where we've been focused on over the last uh, couple of months, you know, since, uh, since, you know, ChatGPT and, um, things like that have actually, uh, come to, to fruition. But I, I've always seen, and we've always seen a Vivantio self-service being a, a really significant part of, uh, service efficiency. And when we talk about digital self-service, we're not talking about just a web form that you fill in and, you know, essentially that just creates a ticket in the system. Right. Uh, what we'd like to think about, there's, there's, there's two aspects to this that I find that are really important. One is, uh, developing self-service interfaces that capture relevant information for the type of request that's coming in. So if this is a new starter, you know, within an HR team or whether it's a, a request for, um, you know, help, what, what kind of questions do you, does the system need to ask that individual to be able to think about then using automation to route that ticket to the right people that can solve the problem? So, you know, a lot of systems don't do that at the moment. And I think it's a really important thing to consider when evaluating self-service technologies, because, you know, if you can capture all that additional information, that removes triage from the process completely. You don't, you know, if you think about it in basic terms, if a ticket comes in and somebody's asking a question or saying, I can't do something, the, fact, the very next question is, well, tell me more, you know, why, what, what are you experiencing? What are the problems? Right. What are the symptoms? You know, and if you can cut out that process altogether and capture that information, you can use, um, you know, machine learning or AI or automation to take that information and determine what to do with it next without actually having to get an agent involved and ideally route it to the right team who, who have the ability to solve that. So, of course, you've cut out a huge part of the process. But also, with, you know, with the um, with generative AI now, we also have the ability of like taking all of the knowledge that exists across the business as it relates to service and support. Um, you know, in the old days, they would, you know, type in a query or search something on self-service and they get a big long list of articles that might be able right. to solve their problem, clicking through and kind of trying to mesh it all together. But now we have the ability of taking that information, looking across, you know, not just the, the knowledge base, but across known problems and solutions that have been solved, you know, within the service management system before and uh, creating an output that might actually solve that problem for, for the end user immediately. So, you know, it, it has the ability to actually cut out the whole service arm altogether by providing the uh, the end customer with the ability to get to the information they need immediately um, without actually having to uh, you know go go through the service team. So I, I think it has a lot to offer. Absolutely, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I think there's always, you know, there is always going to be a need a need for an agent um, in in this process. I don't see these technologies removing uh, agents from the process. You know, solutions can be complex, um, especially in yeah. the B two B world. Uh, in particular, they can they can require a lot of people to get involved. Um, they require changes. They require um, you know a lot of analysis. So you know clearly agents are going to be involved in the process. But providing the agents with as much information upfront so they can be productive from the moment that ticket comes in, uh, you know, is is helps both the customer and 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 the service team. So lots of companies, and you ask them, you know, what is it that sets your company apart? Uh, obviously, probably 90% of them, it's somewhere on the list. They will say, we have excellent customer service. We have great customer service. It's, it's a, you know, a shining feather in our cap, you know, whatever it may be. But it's not always the case because, you know, we're consumers and we're not the market and, you know, service is not always stellar. So what misconceptions do you think are out there around customer service or service management? And you know how do you how do you debunk those you know misconceptions or myths? Um, give me an example. What is what sort of thing you're thinking of in terms of a misconception? Uh, maybe that uh, you know we have great customer service. Well, you know what does that mean? Uh, you know what what is that really? You know, what's what's underneath that? It's it's uh, I got I, again I haven't got the stat in front of me and I can't remember the exact numbers but you know there, there's a number of statistics now that talk about organisations that know that they need to compete on CX um, but only a fraction of them are actually able to do it right um, again I can't remember I can't remember the, the exact numbers and it is surprisingly you know it's surprisingly low the number of organisations that want to compete on customer experience but are unable to do so typically because they don't maybe have the tools or the processes in place or or the people um, to achieve it. I think it's to me, you know, I always lean back on the KPIs and and you know looking at those to understand you know what what is true to the business. So you say you're good at customer experience but what do your churn rates look like you know how many customers are leaving you and how much of the customer service and customer experience is influencing that mm-hmm. um you know nps scores or csat scores you know from customers they tell a, a better story or a true story about whether or not as an organization you're actually providing good service uh, so so to, to me it's uh, i always i always like to fall back on the data um that that's a true reflection and then on the flip side, you know, you, the, one of the reasons why uh, customer service and customer experience is so important is, you know, and we talked about this before, is the fact that it drives growth. Uh, you know, and what does that mean? What, well, that means that, you know, your customers are referring you to other businesses because they're really happy with the products and services and the support that you offer them. They, ref, you know, they're going to fill out a, a form on a G2 or a Captor or a software advice site um, and, and rank you and rate you five stars. Uh, because of the service that you offer. And that has obviously a big impact in terms of how your organization is perceived from the outside world who don't yet know you or who have not yet bought products and services from you. So, you know, the, the service and support that you offer has a has a huge influence on the buyer community. Um, and so again, like, look at that, you know, how, how are we performing in the marketplace? How do our customers perceive us? And, you know, what, in, what impact does that have on um, our ability to sell to new customers or, or you know, hinder us from selling to new customers so customer service profit center or cost center what do you think profit center, absolutely yeah yeah do you think absolutely. that's changed in that the last 20 years i don't think it's changed um i think the perception has maybe changed yes. um yes in some respects yeah certainly when i started out in the industry we didn't think about it in that way 
Um, but I, I think over the last five to six years, maybe, maybe even the last decade, to be honest, I, I, there has been a change in perception and understanding what good customer experience means to an organization. And as I said, a lot of this has come through the digital transformation. The fact there are review sites out there now and customers, you know, can fill out a Google review, uh, you know, so all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's almost been the way in which you perceive that has been forced upon them by the fact that, you know, there are external influences now, um, that, that, uh, have an impact on your business uh, or on, on the customer's business so they've had to think about it in that way um how do we improve our uh, you know the way in which people will perceive us from the outside uh but as they've gone through that process i think what's happened is that they've realized that there's opportunity too it's not yeah. just about looking good and 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 keeping you know keeping customers happy it's actually you know what does net you know net retention look like so we lose some customers that's natural every customer every organization churns certain customers but you know what are the what are the expansion or the upsell opportunities within our existing customer base um happy, happy customers are loyal customers so they're going to stay longer right. so they're going to carry on spending more money with you so i think that yeah you know the leadership have really seen that um you, that there's an opportunity to co-create value within their existing customer base. Um, you know, it's not just about selling more things to them. It's about actually creating bigger and, you know, better relationships uh, where those customers are willing to spend more money with you because they see value in what it is that you offer them. So, so I think that that's the perception that's really changed over the last, the last five or so years. Love that. Yeah. I think it's absolutely changed. Well, where can people learn more about you and about Vivantio online? So check out the website at uh, vivangio.com. Um, and obviously you can, you can find us on LinkedIn too. Um, if you want to reach out to me, you can drop an email to info at vivangio.com and that'll come through to my inbox. So uh, happy to respond to anybody that's, uh, that's got any questions about what they've heard today. Outstanding. Well, Greg, really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for being on SAS Fuel. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. It's been a really, really interesting talk. And uh, thanks for all the listeners too. Really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to listen in. Thanks again, Greg, for coming on the show and sharing your journey and insights. You know, I love your passion for service and how you've created a tool to allow others to shine there as well. You can learn more about Greg at Vivantio.com. Be sure to check out their resource. It's called a complete guide to customer service transformation. You can find that on their website, Vivantio.com. All links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com and video episodes, of course, on our YouTube channel. Subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening to this. Share it with a friend. They will really appreciate it. And everyone who subscribes this week gets a mystery mound of dirt from an undisclosed World Series pitcher's mound. Sprinkle a little bit on your lawn and watch your grass grow with champion-like vigor. Uh, just uh, enjoy having a part of baseball history. Authenticity is, uh, well, just maybe not guaranteed. But join us next Thursday on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, where my guest is Arnab Misra, COO of Exactly. We explore maximizing team performance alignment and wrap up with the unicorn fallacies. You will love this episode. And then next Tuesday, we have founder Cameron Harold. He is founder of the COO Alliance and Second in Command podcast. He's built two $100 million companies and another as COO. We'll be talking about what makes a great second-in-command, the role of the COO, and how the roles of CEO and COO complement each other. So I will see you next time, and as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SAS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sassfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Let's go!